Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. I am the founder and editor in chief of Vent, if you didn't happen to know. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. It's been a while since I interviewed another Huddersfield Town fan, so you'll be pleased to know that my special guest for this week's episode is another Huddersfield Town fan. I'm checking in with James Whitaker. James is, like previous guest Brady Frost, like Andy Kay and Matthew Burton, a big town fan. And James has, like me, also contributed to Andy Takes That Chance podcast, one of Huddersfield Town's most prominent fan channels. In this episode, we discuss AHTTC and how it provided a positive distraction for James during an intense period of grief. That period of grief was over the loss of James's father to sinus cancer, which is a rare form of the disease. We discuss how the cancer took hold in James's dad and how it affected his dad's self-esteem due to the tumour which grew on his face, how lockdown and Covid prevented him enjoying quality time with his dad in his final days and the effect that had on his mental health, the bond they shared over Huddersfield Town and the grief counselling he had to do to help himself get through that mourning period. We also talk about James's lived experience of health anxiety and general anxiety as a teenager and young adult, a peculiar tick he has, which you might hear on the record if you listen closely, and his wider experience around therapy too. So this is how our conversation went. James, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod, lad. It's been a good while since I interviewed another Town fan, probably because Town had a horrendous second half to this season and I uh, kind of wanted to forget about it. But how are you and how are you finding this sort of drip, drip return to normality at time of recording? I'm not bad, thank you. Yeah, like you say, I'm glad the Town season's over. As you say, at time of recording was a bit of a collapse there. But <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been good to go out and start seeing people again. I think that's definitely helpful for everyone's mental health and me personally I'm doing good I've just started a new job which has helped me a lot give me a new sense of purpose and as I say a lot of that's about getting out and about and meeting people which is something that I've missed a lot doing as part of a job and missed a lot doing sort of socially and in my personal life as well so yeah no I think things are definitely improving with the fact that everything's opening up and let's just keep our fingers crossed that it'll keep going in that direction really. Yeah. Exactly, mate. Yeah. Definitely, and that and that's that's really amazing. I've actually got your name right for the first time when we've done this uh, podcast. I mean, for the listeners, for some god awful reason, I thought James's name was Matt. Maybe because he looks like a Matt. But I literally put <laughs> Matt in the entire running order. Bless him. He could have just pulled out. He could have pulled out of this podcast after that, but he didn't. He just corrected me and he got on with it. So fair play, fair play, James. 
Yeah, the weirdest thing about that is like when I was younger, Matthew was my middle name, and I always thought, oh, I prefer Matthew to James. There was about four Jameses in my class at school, so I just thought, oh, I always wish I was called Matt. And then, uh, you know, I meet <laughs> Freddie, and suddenly I'm, I'm Matt to him, and I thought, ooh, is this a new chance for a new me, or shall I just shall I correct him? Mate, and I thought, oh, if, you want a nick- him. if you want a nickname when we see each other at Tower Games, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do uh, it. Yeah. I'm really proud of you for doing this pod and what we're going to discuss, mate. So, shall we just crack on with the show? Yeah, that's great. Great, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I want to start the pod with a brief chat about Annie Takes That Chance, mate, because you've been on it a few times, so we're not going to go into a deep dive into it, as I've already done that with previous guest Brady Frost. So if there's any town fans who are listening, go back and listen to that pod if you want to deep dive into the channel and how we got involved in it. But tell me how you got involved and how it's been a positive distraction for you, James? I've been a listener for a long time, so I was always a bit a fan of it and been a good friend of Brady's for a long time. And a couple of times I basically became and he takes that chance super sub. So I'm not I'm not on it. <laughs> I'm not a regular or anything like that. I'm not on it with all the lads together. I'm just on um, the super sub ones when they're struggling at the last minute, you know, trying you know like it's a five aside five aside Brady. Well Brady's the five aside organizer, which you can imagine, but he'd be sort of panicked saying, James, can you come on this podcast in five minutes? Like, oh, all right then. But yeah, no, on a serious note, yeah, it came at a great time for me, really. I was off sick from work due to my mental health. And as we'll come on to like with a lot of stuff with my dad, I found it really beneficial to me because it's sort of our shared passion, really. And it's something that he's passed on to me. And it's something that I can't really extricate Huddersfield Town from my dad. They'll always just be two things that are always be linked. So being able to talk about town, how they're doing was just the great thing that I needed at that time. And particularly with like the return to the map bits that we did about old players and stuff and the nostalgia around that, that is therapy for, for me. Yeah, definitely. It's been great. That was going to be my next question, to be honest, mate. But doing those pods during lockdown as well, did it give you a... I guess, a sense of normality or at least a sense of productivity. You mean doing pods for me and editing them kept me sane basically during lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't take credit for the editing at all or anything like that, but I did the preparation for the games that we were looking at. I took it fairly seriously and it it was almost like a self-esteem boost as well. And like you said, you know, having that productivity, it just made me feel good about my day because I think one of the things that being off sick, you can feel like you almost can't do anything. That was how I kind of felt, you know, that anything, almost anything would be too stressful or arduous for me. Whereas really, Andy Tex, that chance made me realise that it was the job that I was in that made it that much more difficult as well. And when I was doing something I was really passionate about and that I could get my teeth into, I really enjoyed. And I like the research element of it as well. I'm someone who, that enjoys that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it was nice to do something that you're passionate about. I got to have a chat with Brady about town and then met the well, virtually met the Magic Rock <laughs> founder as well. It was great doing that, yeah. Brady actually mentioned that your dad had passed away on one particular episode, James. Was that important for you and for him to mention it in the way he did? And were you pleased that he did that as a friend as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brady's been a great friend throughout all of this with my dad. Uh, I know, obviously, he's done his podcast and he's told his story about it as well. Mm. I asked if I could, mainly because going back to what I've said, I can't extricate Huddersfield Town from my dad. I didn't feel like I could go on a Huddersfield Town podcast with this happening and not mention something just didn't feel like I could do it and Brady was really accommodating and just giving me that space to just say what I felt that I needed to say and it was great that I had that opportunity and you know people mentioned things from the podcast and and on Twitter as well about it and yeah it it was very very nice very nice that I was Mm. able to do that and offer that tribute as well. 
did you feel like at any point maybe the AHTC community or Brady or just any other the guests that you appeared on the pod with were an extra pillar of support for you during that grieving period outside of say close friends and maybe family I think so I think it's it's a funny one because I don't know I don't know the lads from AH uh, I can't even get this, the easy for you to say yeah but i feel like it's a strange one because i don't really know them that well apart from brady but at the same time you know when i put things out on twitter about my dad i, I got a massive response from you know matt and cozzy and we even used the song at the beginning the smile a while cover that was chris carter's cover that's at the start of the podcast that was even at my dad's funeral so and matt sort of mm-hmm. helped me in terms of put me in touch with chris and and all that kind of thing to help me organise that. So it definitely, definitely would say that there's definitely been a pillar of support, but it's a strange one, as I say, because they don't even particularly know me at all, know me that well at all. Yeah, it's been very good, been very good, the podcast has. We talked briefly about AHTTC, James. Now I want to dive into your own journey. So first of all, tell me a bit about your early life, maybe teenagers, family, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the James we meet here? My childhood was a fairly happy one, I'd say. You know, I grew up in Huddersfield, in Kurt Burton. I would say that I was quite nervous as in general as a, as a child with like things like social anxiety and that kind of thing, although I would never have ever detected or been able to put a phrase on it like that at that age. And, you know, my dad was a worrier. That's how he used to call it. So I think that's something I've certainly inherited from him and, you know, we do have these older terms for, for things that are actually medical conditions, but there you are. I went through a breakup when I was 17 and I suffered with anxiety and depression. It was something that was obviously at that age, I was at college and it was all sort of happening. You know, my ex at the time went to the college and, and it was just all sort of in the public domain. And it got to the stage where going into college was very anxiety inducing for me. Mm, I remember one, world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah, um, yeah. one time I was, well, I went through a phase where I just used to come home and I found it also exhausting. I just used to go straight to bed, then wake up, then read until I could go back to bed again and then do it all again. And basically, I remember one time, anyone who knows the bus route from Kurt Burton to Shelley College will know that like, I got, I got, some people might even remember it if they've listened to this, but I remember I got on at Kurt Burton and I literally got off at the flying ferry at the top of Shelley because I just didn't want to go in. I just felt too anxious. I thought I was going to be sick on the bus, which is like a big you, no one wants to be sick on a bus so no, so i was just I've like, done it so yeah. i know <laughs> so i was just like right i'm getting off and everyone's like what's he doing getting why is he getting off college is still like three stops away but i just got off the bus i just thought i, I can't do it and yeah basically just walked the rest of the way but yeah there's it's a particularly anxious time being a teenager so i wouldn't say it's anything particularly out of the ordinary but it's funny when you look back and you are able to put oh realize oh yeah i was anxious and depressed during that time whereas you just kind of thought at the time, I wasn't able to see it as that. I didn't have that self-awareness or that emotional intelligence. It's a funny thing to look back on. Change was a big thing when we spoke off-air about this yeah. period, mate. And FOMO was something you were affected by at this point in your life. Less so FOBLO, which is fear of being left out because you weren't 18 until July. How did that play into your mental health at the time, especially as the summer between sixth form and the start of university can be a great one. It was sort of mixed for me, but it's definitely a long one. It's funny because since we've had that chat off air, I almost felt a bit 
at the time I've been saying things like that, I almost felt a bit, oh, that's not really a significant thing. Why am I considering that huge? And then I've done a bit of sort of research into the sort of FOMO and all this kind of thing. And it's funny that I have definitely been educated having just spoken to you about it, Freddie, really, because <laughs> it was one of them, especially when you've gone through a breakup, you kind of just want to, for want of a better phrase, just like get out there, socialise with friends. You want to go out. And part of that, mm. you know, it's being visible is kind of, the thing that you're after and being someone who's you know you're almost defining your self-worth by your visibility and your sort of sociality so if you're not being sociable if you're not being visible and at that time as well if you're not drinking it's kind of a thing like oh <laughs> are you even a person worth talking to but yeah I'm a sort of summer baby so I'm, I was 18 in July and all, all my mates had IDs you know I'd been through this breakup I was very anxious at, and you know you want to as I've said sort of improve your self-esteem, improve your self-worth. And there were times where, yeah, I did massively get the fear of missing out, fear of being left out. And it was something that I definitely had. It's something that I think continued in, into my early 20s, really. Yeah, it was a very strange time for me, definitely. At the time, you, you didn't have loads of money to spend on going out either. So even when you did make it to 18, there was still that limitation. Did that intensify the FOMO or FOBLO in any way? Or did it give you perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, more clarity knowing you couldn't do anything about going out more because you literally didn't have the means to do so. It was one of those things. I mean, I had a job where I, I'm sure a lot of us did as well at that time, but we, I had a job where I worked as a pot wash for this restaurant. It was absolutely awful. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was basically how I tried to fund a lot of these things. But it was such a funny time because you want to be sort of out. Everyone else is sort of out. And then it's, you, you never have any money. It shouldn't be going out, but to be seen to be visible, seen to be sort of a social person, which I think I, I definitely valued a lot at the time, was something that seemed like the most important thing in the world. And you look back on it and you laugh a bit, especially when last night, you know, I just have a quiet night and watch the Euros and make some like chicken with my girlfriend and we, we loved it, you know. <laughs> Whereas back then it was like Friday night, if I'm not out, I'm almost like pacing around thinking, what am I doing? You know, it's, it's very strange, really. Before we move on to your experience of health anxiety to get around the ID issue. Like most of us, we had fake IDs or doctored our real ones to some degree, you know, the sticker over the, the number where your birthday was, that was always a good one. There was a funny story here. I wanted to ask you to share about an ID being delivered in in between his DVD. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. There was a friend of mine at the time who was 18 yeah, and he basically wasn't out that night and offered to lend me it, but he didn't want his mum and dad to know he was giving out his ID. So he basically lent me it in an in-betweeners box and went to his door and just said, oh, there you are. And then I came back the next morning, obviously looking a bit worse for wear, and went back to his house and handed him. He was like, oh, yeah, did you enjoy it? And it's like, I can't believe that this would ever be convincing. It's like, what 17-year-old has not seen the in-betweeners at that time in Britain? You know, it was strange, but yeah, the things we did. Your did your mum clock? Did your mum clock or did you think this is definitely Dodge? I don't think my mum had been bothered. I think it was more his mum. I think it was more okay. his mum, but I don't think any anything came of it. I do remember at one time, I borrowed another friend's ID and he, he has a sort of completely different head shape to me. And he doesn't really look that much like me. And I remember a bouncer went, oh, is that you? And I got really annoyed, like, what do you mean, is that me? Of course it's me. And he was like, oh, all right then, come in. And... <laughs> <laughs> but I look back and the bouncer's like, that's definitely not him, but I can't be bothered. <laughs> but there you go. There you go. I want to talk about how those experiences led to health anxiety, James, which yeah. are these sort of little things yeah. which began to accumulate over time for you. And then it became quite a difficult period. How yeah. did that health anxiety manifest for you? 
I was diagnosed with a few health conditions like as growing up, nothing like overly serious, but it was one of those things that I always felt like I had kind of had something wrong with me. And basically, yeah, I think that the hypochondria thing, it's a really strange one in terms of how it's sort of treated or not treated, as, as I would say. It was because... a slur, wasn't it? The hypochondria was a slur for a lot of people, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is it. I remember going to a GP. I went through a phase when I was at university. I used to go to the GP all the time, convinced there were things wrong with me all the time. I even used to go to like A&E sometimes with things that I were convinced that was wrong with me. And basically, I was kind of almost crying out for the treatment for it it never came at all really and it's only really recently since having therapy this past year that I've actually had any kind of treatment for it and it's made the world a difference really but I remember going to a GP and and she sort of laughed a bit when I said you know I get very anxious that I've got health anxiety and she was sort of laughing it's just kind of completely unhelpful when I'm almost saying I know I'm sorry that I'm sometimes wasting your time I don't need a treatment I don't need a GP to just say, actually, there's nothing wrong with you because that didn't help anyway. You know, I needed some kind of therapy, some kind of treatment. And as I say, it never really came until I discussed it with my therapist this year. It made a world of difference. People would just say, oh, it's it's all in your head. I think sometimes people just ignore it or almost just think, oh, just let him go to the GP because otherwise he's not he's not going to feel better. But I never did. I didn't really feel better having gone to the GP. You know, it was one of the, it was very difficult at that time for me. I think it was very strange. And as I say, I think we might come on to it, but I went to the student support centre, but the support was, again, very limited. So I think that it's something that definitely more needs to be done. And particularly, as I say, I was sort of saying to GPs, I know that I'm wasting your time and I don't want to. And then you go away with that guilt from that as well coupled with the fact mm. that you've not actually had the support you want. So it's something that was difficult at that time, but it's it's something that I've definitely got more coping mechanisms from the therapy that I've done recently. So I'd encourage anyone mm. else, if they have something similar, to reach out for support and the therapy and all that kind of thing. Let's talk about York University, because that's where you went to access those yeah. therapy services. Yeah. Not just for your health anxiety, but for the depression you've been experiencing since you were 17. You, you yeah. sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Can you give the listeners a bit of context about why you accessed it, maybe that limited provision that you said you got, and then your experience here with therapy itself? I went to University of York, and it had quite a patchy record on mental health services, I think it's fair to say. There was quite a few suicides at that time. And it was one of them things that you look back on now and you are able to reflect and see that in the services that were available, really. I found the first few sessions quite helpful and then I think that it got to the point where they sort of had to break it to me that that it was a limited service, it couldn't go on forever. But I didn't really feel like it had come to its natural end. I felt like it had been quite abruptly cut short and I think the counsellor sort of said something along the lines of, oh, well, there are no quick fixes for this, which is I think is completely unfair. I don't really think anyone who goes for something like that or has the bravery to go to something like that as well, because it's not easy, is looking for quick fixes. (laughs) So I think looking back on it now, I mean, it's extremely sad, given that, like I say, I'm not going to entirely lay the blame at York University or at those services for the sort of atmosphere at that time, but I think it's certainly a contributing factor in terms of the services and, and the awareness at that time. I mean, it's so strange looking back in 2021 and think about 
you know, 2014, but we have come a long way in terms of mental health. You know, I think that it would be much more of a, sounds harsh to say, but I think that it would be more damaging to the university now than what it was then. So I'm not sure what, how, what the services are like now. Maybe someone can correct me on that. But yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's something that was very disappointing and very mm. saddening, really. I think the story you just told could be reflected across so many universities, mate. And I think it's simply a, a question of demand because I think with a lot of these services, they're dealing with people, you know, like me who went to it when I was suicidal and I was seen yeah. straight away. But when I previously went to the service and said, you know, I'm feeling down, but I was too yeah. scared or too stigmatized to say I was suicidal. They said, yeah. oh, can you come back in eight months when we have an appointment? Yeah. So that's the level of the exactly, spectrum that yeah. they're dealing with. At the time, did you feel discarded or, or something similar? And then now looking back, are you more, not accepting maybe, but you're more reflective on the state of the system as it was at that time and maybe they had no other choice yeah definitely I mean I'm someone that works with offering in the public sector offering services to people so I understand like in the environment of cuts that we've had and things like that I'm fully understanding that it's potentially not the counsellor herself and I don't know maybe some service users that I've met will listen to this and they might think well his service wasn't great to me sadly it's one of those things that I, I am sort of understanding of in that respect that in that particular environment you know it is limited what they can do and yeah I think I do I do look back on it it's not something that I'd hold against them necessarily personally but you know as you've said yourself a bit there Freddie it's one of them that maybe they could focus more on doing preventative I mean I think that to be fair I think the focus is more now on preventative work but I think that it's helpful to focus on things like preventative work before people are at the sort of before they're really struggling yeah it's something that you do reflect back on and it's something that yeah you feel discarded but I, I, I don't think I took it necessarily personally or anything like that yeah there were some positives that I took out of it and things like that in terms of feeling like I could access support and, and all that kind of thing which some people yeah. s- sadly never do how did you find university generally? Because many people think it's one big giant hedonistic adventure and to some degree it is. I certainly have my share of it, but also have my share of horrific mental health downs. You told me you found it quite isolating at times. Did that surprise you when that hit you? Yeah, I think so. I think that you've kind of summed up my experience there as well, to be honest. I think that it was one of those where I went to university and one of my best friends went to the same university as well. It was quite a funny one, really, because he kind of had his group of friends. He kind of made a group of friends. But basically, I I felt that I was quite isolated, not really fitting in anywhere particularly. I think, as you said, it's quite isolating. Some people had course. I never understand how people had made friends on the course. I think I had like two friends (laughs) on my course. It's like I just saw them for lectures. Didn't talk to anyone before. Went to lectures, went to seminars, went home. That was it. Yeah, I think it's one of them, you know, going back to me as a 17, 18-year-old as well. But if you're going through a tough time, you know, at that time, then you almost put all your hopes and dreams in this university thing that will sort all my problems out. And it's just sadly not realistic. You know, you're always told that you'll make friends for life from university. Well, I think there's only two, you know, two or three people that I'm... That I'm, <laughs> I'm the same. You know, I'm I had loads of mates at uni. Now it's like two, two or three. Yeah, I, 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 went, I went to university. I'll, I'll never speak to anyone from Huddersfield again now. Who needs Huddersfield when I've been to university? And then it's like, reality hits and it's like you know actually these people that you grew up with you've got a lot more in common with potentially than someone that spent a few nights out with in york and so you've summed it up perfectly it's a very mixed one but very isolating as well i went through a period where i didn't really feel like i fit in anywhere particularly and there was a lot of those feelings again of like the fomo and the 
was it Fobo? Can't remember. I'm rubbish yeah. with acronyms. It's as Fo- Foblo and Fobo. Foblo. There we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was one of them. It, it was, like you say, very isolating experience, particularly, you know, a lot of time my course was quite tough and you're reading on your own, essentially, for a lot of it. And a lot of it is about doing it alone. We've come to the main part of this pod. And the reason I approached you about coming on, James, which is your dad and his passing this year to a rare form of cancer known as sinus cancer. Can you set the scene for the listeners first, if you could maybe tell me about the man your dad was and then that diagnosis journey from when he was diagnosed through to when he passed? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad grew up in Kurt Burton in Huddersfield, just like me. So he's a very gentle man, very humble man. He was the son of a milkman. He was an accountant. I'd say that he's very organized. It's funny, he's a very reserved character, but then when he had a drink, he would be completely different. He would be like the life and soul of the party. He'd tell these stories with like this wide-eyed glare and everyone would be like listening and thinking, where's this going here? But yeah, he was a bit of a character. He's a bit of a sort of legend in Kirkburton in the village in Huddersfield where I grew up and the stories that people have got, you know, of him and, you know, people say to me, oh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. You know, I remember him, he'd go for runs at six in the morning on a Saturday morning in like these tiny little shorts. So like, I've had loads of like women that have said stuff like, <laughs> <laughs> like that to me. And I was like, all right, OK, yeah, yeah, that's my dad. You know, he'd, he'd probably had like 10 pints the night before and then he's just gone for a run at six in the morning. I don't know how anyone can do that. But yeah, he was sort of a gentle guidance throughout my life, really. He could tell you off, he could get angry and that kind of thing. He never really sort of like forced anything on me. Never, you know, he never forced mm. Huddersfield Town on me that much, really. You know, that was something <laughs> that, you know, he did Even pass on. Dad yeah, <laughs> he took me along, but he didn't mind if I just, you know, I remember when I was really young and I was just, I just play on my Game Boy and he just let me so, <laughs> mm. when I was really young at, at town. So. He was a great man, really. He's a big loss for my family, for my mum, for my brothers and sisters and everyone that knew him. And even, like, my girlfriend as well. She only knew him two, well, probably two years. Uh, well, still a long time. But, yeah, and, and her family. He was quite infectious in his personality, really, especially when I'd had a drink. You know, he loved to sing, loved dancing. There's a few videos of him dancing at weddings and loved an away day at town and loved travelling as well. He was a bit of a cosmopolitan as well, which is probably quite surprising, <laughs> given you know, mm. he's, he'd never actually lived anywhere other than Kurt Burton. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Anyone listening mm. that knows him will, will know as well. You told me that your grieving period for him actually started when he was diagnosed. What did you mean by that? Did you believe consciously or, or subconsciously that the diagnosis was a, was a death sentence at its worst? I think that at that time, I felt that I'd sort of compartmentalised that much. There's so many different parts of me thinking so many different things. So I'd almost, and I think we discussed this a bit off air, Freddie, but like in terms of my anxiety, it forms as like ruminations. So after hearing about my dad, my dad's diagnosis with sinus cancer, immediately my mind flashed to like his funeral, basically. That would be something that would like reoccur throughout. But the way that I'd say me myself wanted to view it was in the same way that my dad viewed it was that he would fight it off that's how he viewed it he had a positive mental attitude that's what he was like generally but I think that it's one of those that part of me was already grieving a little bit part of me did believe that it was a death sentence already you know I'd already started doing the things that I now recognize as part of grieving for my dad sort of on and off really which is the way grief works anyway. But, 
Yeah, so I think that part of me already had. Yeah, definitely. As I said, it's a rare form of cancer. So at first, doctors weren't quite sure how to treat it. Yeah. They started with chemotherapy, which wasn't too effective, and then they moved on to radiotherapy. However, that treatment is arguably a more painful and draining form, I'm, I'm right in saying. Yeah, that's Can right. you tell me how that treatment affected your dad as well as his physical and mental health? Because I understand it's not a very dignified treatment and wasn't helped by the fact that the cancer was very visible on his face. So did that help affect his self-esteem as well? Or maybe was a, a more visible reminder of the cancer, unfortunately, for you and your family? Yeah, it was a constant reminder. I mean, I won't go into it too much, but it took him, yeah, it took sure. him quite a while to get the diagnosis in terms of what went to the medical stuff too much. But I think he was even prescribed with hay fever tablets. And I think we did have them at one point because he had like this visible lump in his right cheek. And it was actually drained as an abscess by a dentist. Initially, he was diagnosed with acute sinusitis and went into Calderdale Hospital for that. And then as soon as the doctor saw him in Calderdale Hospital, they said, I know straight away you've got sinus cancer, which was a mm. bit of a shock because... About a month earlier, my dad just said, oh, yeah, I've got a bit of a cold. So, it, mm. you know, it was, it was a complete shock, really. And as I say, the reason why he went to the doctors is because he had this lump growing in his cheek, really. And it was coming from his sinuses. It wasn't actually coming from his cheek or his mouth. It was coming from the tubing back there. So in terms of the radiotherapy, though, I mean, that's part of it, really, in terms of trying to reach that area. It's a strange thing to say, but the face is pretty crucial <laughs> in terms of everyday life. And he's having this treatment that essentially trying to like burn it off, really. His mouth was completely ulcerated. So just imagine your mouth's full of ulcers completely. You know, he couldn't swallow anything. He couldn't drink anything. Basically, it got to the point where he had feeding tube basically put in. So a tube would just take these mushed up nutrients down directly into his, without too graphic like directly into his yeah. stomach basically and he lost a lot of weight it was all a bit of a shock and very not pete whittaker i would say he's a man who loved eating loved drinking he's a good looking guy and it completely transformed him it was very difficult for him but he was very brave you know he didn't stop wanting to do things i remember he had this very visible lump on his face and he came to watch Huddersfield town women with me my girlfriend and Brady and his girlfriend and I actually said oh I'm going to watch Rusfield Town women at Stores Hall and well I didn't actually invite him but he actually said can I come with you and I said yeah of course you can but he still went out he still did things and all this kind of thing but I think it was very hard for him for his mental health he was very self-conscious of it and as you say, it was a constant reminder. And my mum kept trying to take pictures of it, find out whether the chemo's working. Is it visibly reducing? At one point, it was visibly reducing. And then we went to the doctors and it was nowhere near enough. And it was definitely a constant reminder. And at one point, basically, it got so painful on the side of his mouth that he'd grown like this beard. And it was completely grey. Now, my dad had sort of grey in hair. And his hair had gone completely grey as well. So he turned up at my house, like, completely grey with a grey almost like George Michael Beard. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a complete shock because anyone who knows my dad will know that he absolutely hates beards, just as a general thing. <laughs> anyone wearing a beard on the news, he'd say, oh, they're not on a shave. He was kind yeah. of up for it. People should be smart. People shouldn't have facial hair. <laughs> the only person that he actually respected with facial hair is Olivier Giroud, which is random. Wow. But he said he was the only man that could carry it off. <laughs> but there, yeah. there you are. Yeah, it was a complete change in terms of the way he was, the way he looked. And, you know, he turned up 
at my flat and obviously all this is while COVID is going on as well. So we're all very scared given how his body would respond to something like that would be, mm. again, that would be a death sentence basically. So my mum was beside herself really trying to just stop anything like that from happening. And yeah, it was a big shock to see him like that, as I say, because he's a man who completely hated beards and he had this grey beard. It was It was a big shock, yeah. Before we move on to the more difficult part of your dad's cancer journey and that eventual grief period, yeah. I want to touch on your relationship here because similar to me and my dad, your relationship, like you said, was shaped around town. Can you tell me about some of your maybe favourite memories of going to town with your dad and, and any other memories you remember fondly? You, you managed to see him on Boxing Day 2020 and yeah. watched the game against Barnsley, but unfortunately we lost that game. So yeah. it's obviously probably not the best one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't think that'll go down well no maybe it would actually go down as one of the more fun memories actually but i think it began taking me at a time where i had no idea i remember my first game but i don't remember the result i don't remember who we played i don't really remember most of the players i think it was we got relegated first game for me <laughs> do you remember the birmingham game oh yeah when we yeah went yeah down yeah. The champ. yeah 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 <laughs> that was my first game oh dear great start oh, dear. you can't accuse me of being a plastic town fan <laughs> we got to the prem brilliant I think it was around the time Kenny Irons, Craig Armstrong, Leon Knight yeah. are just names yeah. that I'm aware of and have since yeah. looked more into and I'm more familiar with, but it's that kind of era. But the era that I would say I was like town conscious, if that's a word everyone's ever said before, but like Huddersfield town conscious and Huddersfield town crazy, to be honest, at that point was the season in League Two that we had, which is 2003, yeah. 2004. Yeah, and, the, bandana, yeah, the bandana one. that we had and uh, <laughs> against all odds, which is really funny because we're like the oh. biggest team in League Two at that time but, that, <laughs> by you, a mile you, as well. You can, you can wear that now. You can wear that now. There's two on PC. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true as well. And it was a great team with a lot of lads from Huddersfield. It was easy to connect with and Andy Booth who you know <laughs> need I say more I'm nodding listen need I say more he's nodding we might go down a rabbit hole nodding. here <laughs> yeah well I don't think I've ever seen a better head of the ball I don't think I ever will see a better head of the ball yeah it was it was a fantastic season I remember Cardiff but I remember oh. Mansfield that day where we could have just yeah. sorted it all. We could have won and gone up automatically, but typical town, we don't. Yeah. We lose. And Cheltenham, Cheltenham won, didn't they? Oh, you yeah, and then Cheltenham as yeah. well. Yeah. And it was just a joke. And then... it, was a, it was a Powell Abbott back pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's another it. thing, actually, because I remember I used to say, you know, when you're younger and you used to say things like, oh, yeah, I'm Pavel Abbott when you're playing football. And it's, oh, Pavel Abbott, shoot. And I remember I did that once. And I said, oh, I'm Pavel Abbott. And my dad went, what, after that back pass? You know, he just couldn't <laughs> let it be a thing that's like, even as a child, wanting to be like a footballer, he's just like, well, oh, don't be him, be someone else. <laughs> But yeah, I remember it. Cardiff really well. And that's the season that, that is still a big part of my grief. I'll just, I want to talk to anyone about that season. <laughs> I bought mm. a shirt, uh, like a training shirt from that season. It just has... XXXL, in it? Yeah. I've got mine, it's a medium, but it still hangs off me. And I've, got, I've, gone off, I've gone up like two stones. <laughs> I got like a coaching shirt that I remember Terry Yoroff wore and it had like all the details on where it was, you know, Cardiff, 2004, <laughs> the date. And um, I bought it on eBay and a bit of a side thing. I got it on eBay and I got it home and it stunk of cigs so badly. I had to put it straight in the wash. <laughs> I was just like, wow, you're not even wash it or anything but fair enough that's town fans but yeah no that season was absolutely great and then obviously at Wembley we had a little cry when we went up and 
I remember this is typical when I was well because they were playing. I can't remember what they're playing. Must have been playing whatever was in the charts at the time. And my dad probably the Heffler song, wasn't it? Well, it was that initially, yeah, which my yeah. dad did really like. But then they played something else, and my dad was like, "Get the music off. We'll sing. Get the music off." <laughs> and that was the kind of person he was. Like, we don't need music. We'll sing. Just let us sing. Yeah, some absolute great memories with my dad, and I should mention my brother as well, who came along. We're a bit of a trio. On and off, because he played football himself as well. So, But yeah, we're, we're a bit of a trio when we went to watch town. So that's something that will always be very special to me. And in particular, as I say, 2003-2004 season and young lads from Huddersfield and Boothy and all the others. And, and yeah, and obviously Wagner loved him to bits. And that promotion season really will be the two great memories, great memories watching town. But there's so many more and it was great that you know, I'm very grateful that I got the chance to have all those memories with them and I understand that I feel the loss very keenly, but as well, I'm very grateful that I got those memories. A lot of people don't have a dad who's visible, mm-hmm. miserable, it's a bit of a Freudian slip there, sorry dad, but <laughs> don't have a dad who's visible. Yeah, they don't have a dad who's, who they have those memories with. So I, I'm very mm-hmm. great. I'm very grateful for that really. And mm-hmm. and as I say, I'm, I guess I am grateful for him passing Huddersfield Town onto me, but one of my mum's relatives said, I think he said it's his worst bad habit and, uh, yeah, that's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's his worst right. habit, yeah, that he's been continuing. He, this is a man in his 80s, he's still going. So, yeah, it's something my dad's given me my worst habit, mm. and I'll be sure to pass it yeah. on <laughs> to anyone who will let mm. me. So, <laughs> I think you're right, mate, especially because, I mean, my dad had a stroke four years ago, and it was, I think it was either, the, I think it was the season just before the promotion season. So I could have lost him and not hidden him not oh, been able to see yeah. him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, there was a there was a few dads I knew. I think yeah. who I heard on the Grapevine and Town fans who didn't get to see yeah. promotion. So I mean, oh, I guess there is that, tough. and we yeah, you exactly. know we can be we can be grateful for that. I want to move on to the sort of next stage of that grief journey after Christmas because things took a big turn quite quickly, didn't they? In yeah. late January, your dad got test results back and was told his cancer had spread to his lungs as well, yeah. which triggered the start of his palliative care. You said at this point it was a question of if not when he passed how did you react to those test results and and what was your mental health and his mental health state like at that point at that time I was numb to the full effects of it I think I would say that I was I felt very protective of my mum and my brother and sister and my dad obviously as well but I kind of wanted to to shield everyone from the worst of it which obviously is not not gonna work but do you see what I mean? It was something that... It's a protective nature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember my mum my telling me when it happened and she said, it's our worst nightmare. It's our absolute worst nightmare. So it was extremely hard and it was it was hard to see him. It's hard to see him suffering. You know, it was hard on mm. Boxing Day and on Christmas Day when I was able to see him. One of the few times I w- was actually able to see him as well. And, you know, he couldn't eat, couldn't drink. And I've already said those, those were his favourite things. So it was it was a long period of suffering and it felt like it was getting worse it was devastating my sister was in New Zealand so we had to go about getting her back and my dad my dad was a man who didn't want fuss made over him he hated fuss so he was kind of not very good at dealing with that aspect of cancer as well because a lot of people will make a fuss over you <laughs> yeah if you've got cancer and you couldn't cope with that so that's classic Yorkshire yeah now. definitely he was just like 
I'm doing a face and just realised. No, I don't want out. I don't want out, boss. He'd he'd be grimacing and shaking his head whenever, like, my mum would be like, oh, you're warm enough. You're all right. I mean, I just need to say as well, my mum's been an angel and a rottweiler throughout the whole thing, I'm sure she'll say. She, She was very defensive of my dad, you know, particularly, I think, you know, family members had come to drop things off or I'd want to come around and see him and she'd be like, reiterating the covid risk this was january when there was people were dying in the thousands of covid and my dad's probably one of the most vulnerable people in in the yorkshire area from covid at that time you know and it was really tough with the lockdown with everything at that time and we had to do things like mum would come and drive to headingley where i live and with dad in the back and i'd speak to him in the back of the car with a mask on He'd be in the back of the car, be sat, stood outside, and you know I'd come and go back to Kerber, and he'd come to the window, open the window. I remember it, it, I came to the window thinking, oh, not obviously being really scared of COVID, and he just went, he just sort of grabbed me and said, oh, come here, type thing, gave me a hug. So, yeah, it was it was re- really difficult, really difficult with COVID, and it was tough getting my sister back as well from New Zealand with the sort of COVID aspects of it. And then on the day when he passed away, we went to go and see him in hospital and we had to get kitted up in sort of full PPE. It's just, you know, at one point, I'm sure, you know, it's just, that was difficult. And my mum, bless her, at one point just said, come on, just take your gloves off, let your dad sort of feel your warmth, really. And mm. obviously I'm someone who's more at risk of COVID as well. So that, that was something to consider. But, you know, in moments like that, you obviously still want to be careful. You still want to look after your dad. But there does come a time where you have to balance that with other things and that particular situation. So I'm very grateful that I did get to spend the time that I did with him. And, that you know, mm. there were some days where, you know, there was one point where I took a lateral flow and just said, I'm going to go and see him because he, he, re- he was really in a bad way. And I went to go and see him and within a couple of days he died after that. So, you know, happy to, happy to say on record that I'm glad I went out and, you know, I did a lateral flow test that, to keep everyone safe, of course, but I went out and I'm glad I was there. You know, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I was at home for my mum and my brother and then my sister as well when she came. So, yeah, it was very difficult with COVID, but it was about working around yeah. it, really. It's been six to seven months since your dad passed, mate. Where do you feel along that grieving journey at this point? Um, I think that I'm... I'm... I'm never... With the grief, I'm never really sure where I am, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm never sure where I am. That's, that's a natural thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's uh it'll catch me on you know as as we all give it'll catch me in a certain way at certain times sometimes at the worst times which i don't know mm. people talk about but i'm about to go out to my mates so you know watch euros or about to got plans or things to do and suddenly it'll catch me just before i leave the house well i'm not now and you know i'll just have to go and have a little cry and look at the pictures or you know go and get the old keep the faith dvd out or you know, all, all those all those things that are young guns that, yeah yeah that one i need to watch that one i've watched a bit of it but i need to, i need to go back yeah go back to those things and yeah it's something that is definitely a longer process that i even realized or fully gave it credit for and i think it's one of those things that you hear this phrase a lot sort of be kind to yourself i remember my old boss used to say it all the time, and I used to be like, I didn't really get what she meant. So, oh, what? Like, 
be kind. What does that mean? And then I've kind of understood that you've you've got to have a generous interpretation of the events in your own life. Sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd feel, well, I have felt very angry at times. I've felt very upset. I'd, I'd sort of sob uncontrollably. I'd feel down and not know why. And then it'd just be like, well, hold on. <laughs> I've got a pretty good idea why all this why all this has happened, actually. And it's because of the grief. And it's just having that self-awareness, as I think you mentioned, Freddie, before. And that's how I see being I didn't understand what it meant, but now I think I do understand, you know, have that generous interpretation. If you met someone else who said, I'm feeling really angry, I'm feeling really depressed. Oh, and by the way, my dad died of a rare cancer in February. You know, you go, well, <laughs> I've got a good idea why. Like, it's quite a natural thing. You know, it's it's not something that that's in any way surprising or, you know, you don't need to go around looking too far for underlying causes necessarily. Mm. So that's where I am at the moment. As I say, I've started a new job, which is back in Huddersfield, which is nice as well, because it's a little bit of a homecoming as well, Mm. which is what I feel that I I need at this time. So it's a funny one because we're over the initial sort of stage. Everyone's sort of shifted on. A lot of people have moved on with their lives now. A lot of people don't mention it. I bring my dad up every opportunity I can. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast. I love talking about him. It's all I ever want to do, you know, and that's part of it as well. So there comes a point people will move on, you know, and it's almost like you get this flurry of activity when it first happens and you don't want that to continue on forever, but it's just getting your head around the fact that life will go on. It's just seeing, you know, I had this great person in my life who did these great things for me and, and we loved a lot and, We've just got to be grateful for that. And we mm. feel the loss, but we're above all, we're grateful, really. Yeah. You mentioned there about the idea that people sort of move on and then get back to normal. And this is something that actually Simon Thomas, who's a presenter, he talked about with his therapist in his book. And his therapist said to him, there's only so much time people can stare at that pain who are not in your circle. And I wanted to speak about here because there's a few tropes that people talk a lot about on this pod James when it comes to grief one is a perspective that grief is in a lot of ways more stigmatized than mental health and also that other people place a metaphorical ticking clock on your grief for you to get over it in inverted commas and get back to normal are those things that you've experienced with your grief and do you share any of those perspectives it's really interesting you mentioned that ticking clock i always think of soprano have you seen the sopranos with no oh it's great there's a great bit where tony soprano basically forces this guy to say like you've put your grief behind you haven't you he's like you've put your grief behind you uh to be fair no one's been no one's been anywhere near as, as bad as that but i would say that there's definitely like the way that people handle these things is completely awful. I, I would say as a general, there's a lot of people who have supported me and they know they are. I don't need to shout them all out, but you know, I'm so grateful for that and, you know, feel much, so much love for them, those people. But I think that like one of the things I've mentioned before, I'm from a small village outside of Huddersfield and the way that people responded to death and grief in the midst of my dad was was shocking it spread like wildfire it was the latest piece of gossip as a family we had no time to process these things on the night of my dad's death people were asking my mom if they could put tributes on facebook and you know you always imagine when you get you know when you see a celebrity death or something in bbc and it's always like oh, the family have asked for privacy at this time and you know and you always imagine that, that that's very well respected and it's just not it's just absolutely not i think my mum bears the brunt of it really in terms of these strange comments, these strange reactions. And 
I'm out of that. I'm living away from that village, and I'm quite glad I am in some ways. But some people have said some stuff like to my mum, like, oh, you know, you're looking well for it. Uh, I was sort of like, what, you know, looking well for the, for the, for the death of death of my husband, which is an odd thing. And some people have made jokes like, oh, well, you know, get yourself back out there, and things like that. And it's just, I want to take some of that burden away from my mum, but knowing what mum's like, what my mum's like anyway, she's very protective and she wants to shield me from it all. So I think there's a very gendered aspect to it as well. You know, like when I go Mm. back, when I go back home and relatives, friends will sort of come to her and sort of say, oh, well, what was the story then? Like, it's the story. It's like, they never asked me for the story. They never come to like a male, 25-year-old male. I'm an adult person. They always ask like, almost for like a widow's story. Oh, we need to know this. Like I said, a little bit like the latest gossip, but it's kind of like, why is it my mum's responsibility to tell you this story? Why don't you ask me? You've seen me walking around and when I'm around at home, I go for a walk and I've seen people, they ignore me. They walk past me. They know who I am, but they ignore me. They, like you said, they don't want to stare the pain in the face, but they'll speak to my mum and ask for every sort of intricate feeling and detail as if she wants to to share that it's her decision if she wants to share that or not maybe she does maybe it's just there's a repetition angle there as well exactly like having to it. repeat those details and that's when you just you know disclosing bad news repetition is is awful yeah so... i think this is it you know a lot of people are very well-meaning i will say and a lot of people have been offering my mum support but i think sometimes it, it can and has sort of merged its way into something different even if it is well-intentioned i don't know if she'd want me to say this but she doesn't shop near where we live there were times where she'd go for a walk to get away from it all and people would stop in the car and want to talk to her about it. And it's sometimes I think, you know, like I say, sometimes it is well-meaning and I'm not saying people can't offer that support and she is appreciative when people do, you know, I know we all are, but some of the things that people do say and, line, and have said, like, literally, yeah, it's a very strange thing. And as I say, there's certainly a gendered aspect to it in that they want to hear it from my mum. They don't ask me for the story. They don't ask me and my brother for it it's very strange and it's something that i kind of want to protect my mum from but she won't let me (laughs) at all Mm. and i don't see how uh, it's difficult to see how i could but it's a really funny one grief it's a really Mm. funny one as you say in terms of the stigma and the things that people do say people do say very strange things i think as a society i think we need to get a lot better with talking about it i think that we need to have the emotional intelligence to talk about it and i think sometimes even you know, when my dad was ill, he had good friends. And I think, again, they, they were too scared to look the pain in the face or didn't know what to say. So they chose not to say anything. But I think that... It's so much worse than not saying anything. Yeah. Or it th- is worse than not saying Yeah, exactly. Saying something wrong that you can be corrected <clears throat> on, isn't it, really? Exactly. If you're just scared of saying something wrong. And that's been the case with some family members as well. And I think that my dad didn't get a massive amount of support from certain people, particularly males. I have to say, particularly males, because they didn't have the emotional intelligence to cope with it. Or the language. Or the language. Or even if they're just so absorbed in their own thing. Or, yeah, you know, I can't say I don't blame them at some point. But then as a society, there's a lot that's gone into training men to not talk about their feelings and to being stiff upper lip. And it goes back to a lot of other things, you know, and causes a lot of problems as well. So it's a shame because my dad wasn't like that at all. You know, he always said to me, he loved me. He always said, you know, I don't mind, you know, I, I don't, if you want to talk to me about anything, come and talk to me about it. You know, he talked to me about absolutely anything. He was a gentleman. He was a very emotional man. It might surprise some people who knew him on a more su- surface level, but 
you know, he's, it, we used to laugh because his favourite books were like these romance novels like Ian McEwan and Louis Bernier and like, I mean, like, a bit, like Ernest Hemingway, probably his favourite. And he liked all these romance novels. I'm all over there reading like these crime horror things about someone's eyes being like gouged out or whatever. My dad had been like crying at this book about this like couple that have been through a war or something. So... Yeah, he's a very emotional man, and I think that's definitely thanking Fox. I don't think I would be here talking about these things unless he he brought me up to be like that. So, yeah, he's great. Before we move on to your therapy journey after your dad's passing, mate, if he was listening to this podcast, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think you would say to him, and what do you think he would say to you? I think that I just want to say, you know, I love you, Dad. We all miss you. Um, and um, it's a tricky one because I, I almost feel like I was lucky enough to be able to say things to him when he was semi-conscious before he passed away. And I felt like I was able to say everything then. So I don't feel like there's anything that, that's left unsaid or that I need to say that that mostly covered it. I had that moment with him and it's very traumatic, but it's very a treasured one as well that I'll never forget. So I think that if he was here now and if he could talk to me, I'd say, town of re-signed Jordan Rhodes. What do you think of that? (laughs) Um, Honestly, I want to know what he thinks. This is one of the things that's been most frustrating for me because I hear a lot of opinions out about town, but this is one thing that I never hear his opinion. I don't get his opinion now, so I have to try and imagine what it is, which is not easy. But yeah, no, on a serious note, like, you know, these are the things that I would be asking him and these are the things that pop into my head and I just think, oh, I'll just drop him a text. Oh, no, wait, he's dead. I can't. So then I have to mm-hmm. almost, like, come up with other things. And But yeah, he knows He knows how grateful we are for him. He knows how proud we are. He's such a lost, so many people. I think that one thing I would say is that we got this booklet from from his work about all the things that people have written in from his work and... He didn't really mention his work to us that much, I think, because he's an accountant and he probably, you know, it's a bit boring, isn't it? But <laughs> he didn't really mention people at work that much, but his character came across so strongly to them as well. You know, he had his own work catchphrase that I didn't know about. I think that he's so humble. I don't know. I don't know if he's just so humble he doesn't believe it, or I don't know if he just doesn't believe it, but I don't think he realized how many people really loved him. So I'd want to try and convey that. I'd want to say that, really. I think that that's something that... I think that's something that I'd love to try and get across to him. But I hope he already knew it. I think that he was just humble enough. I think he does, mate. I think he's just humble enough to just think, Mm. oh, don't be fussing over me. Oh, you know, don't be doing that. I think he knew, but I think he just didn't want to let on that he could be as big a character, that he could be loved that much. I don't think think Mm. he really wanted to, to let on that he thought that you know, he yeah. was sort of big enough to be that person who deserved that much, but he did. He did. Mm. Two weeks before your dad's death, mate, you took bereavement leave and you also yeah. made the decision to seek therapy around yeah. the same time. It was initially therapy for workplace stress, if I'm right in saying, and then eventually it was grief. How did that therapy journey play into your mental health and what tools or things did you discover along the way with that? That was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> Taking sick off work and going on therapy. Because 
I was struggling in that job for months. I won't go into it because obviously I, I don't know how much I even can say on record. I, yeah, I don't sure, work for MI, I don't work. Yeah. I didn't work for MI five, so it's it's not that high secret. <laughs> but I worked with people who were homeless or threatened with homelessness. So it was a great job. It was one of the best. I think it probably was the best job I've ever had. You know, I've just started this one, but going through a pandemic, doing it completely remotely with like increased demands on the service short staff all the sort of stress and mental health problems that come with the pandemic then come with working in that kind of environment in the pandemic and then obviously my dad being diagnosed and his health essentially deteriorating was something that I got to the point I couldn't cope with I mean I as I said I'd sort of compartmentalized that I felt like I was able to process it I always felt like, oh, it's better for me to keep busy, so I'm not thinking about it. And then I went off sick and thought, what a load of rubbish that was. Um, (laughs) And got the therapy that I needed, which was through my work, which I am obviously very grateful for. The therapist was great. I don't know if she'd be listening, but she'll recognize my voice. I don't know if she wants me to say her name, so I won't, but she'll recognize my voice and she'll recognize my story. So she was absolutely brilliant. Coming from it, from that sort of neutral, no skin in the game sort of perspective was so brilliant for me. I felt like I could say everything without it upsetting her. And I have to say as well, I don't know if I've mentioned her enough, but like my girlfriend's been absolutely amazing throughout all of this, Andrea and her mum and dad who've been really, really amazing. But there's things, you know, I'd say things to her, but I didn't, she suffers a bit with anxiety. You know, I didn't want to make her anxious, her upset as well, and spiral with that a bit. And things were really difficult at that time, and she really encouraged me to do it. And as I say, she knows she has been anywhere. I don't even need to say it on here, but I just feel like I haven't given her the credit. (laughs) You've done well. No, you've done well. You get some points for that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm going to get told off otherwise. But no, she knows how amazing she is. She doesn't need me to say it on here. But yes, honestly, one of the best things I've ever done. The way she came across was so strong, so honest. So, you know, I would say things to her like, these health conditions, they make me just feel like an ill person. And she went... Well, would you think that about anyone else? And just came back, snapped back at me like that. And I was just like, no, I wouldn't. And she said, well, why are you thinking it about yourself? And it was just so great to have that almost like such a, I'm like punching my hand here, but almost like such a hard hitting response. Just being challenged. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was, and she said herself, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a funny sort of therapy because. I went off with workplace stress, obviously related to my dad's illness, obviously not knowing at that point that he was going to pass away, not even knowing that the cancer had spread to his lungs at that point. So I needed that more than I'd ever realised. And she said she didn't do full bereavement counselling with me because it was basically too early. I mean, I started it when it hadn't even, you know, he hadn't even died yet, but that's what I mean. I need, but at that time it was just what I needed and it's benefited me massively. And it might be that I need to go back for some bereavement counseling. It might be that that's where I go. That's my next step on the sort of journey, really. Obviously Brady always says how much that's helped him as well. So yeah, but honestly it was the best thing I've ever done and like going off sick, I hated it initially because I didn't want to let people down. You know, working with people who are homeless or threatened with homeless, I didn't want to feel like I was letting them down, but it came to the point where I just thought, I need to look after myself so I can continue to do a job that supports people. That's how yeah. I basically got around it and thought, you can't completely give yourself to work in a situation like that. And 
as I say, working from home in that environment was extremely difficult. You'd ring people, you couldn't get hold of someone. Someone would ring you at half four, needing temporary accommodation, and it'd be so hard to get hold of managers to get approval, and all these kind of things were very stressful. <laughs> so yeah, mm. going off sick and going to therapy was the best things I've done. I'd I'd say to anyone who's suffering with that kind of work, well workplace stress to do that really and i got the therapy through my workplace as well and i think that that'll be the same for a lot of public sector and more and more workplaces now offering mm. that and this should be you know during a pandemic this should, this should be so it's something that as i say best thing i've ever done before we reflect on your journey james when you were midway through therapy you discovered you had a tick which was linked to your anxiety. Now, I'll edit a few of these out so the listeners don't <laughs> Good. have it all the way Good. through, but I'll keep a few of them in. Yeah. Can all you right. tell the listeners about that tick and how the therapy helps you get better at managing it? Yeah, again, I mean, it's like I've said, and it's like we said off air, Freddie, so much is about self-awareness and just like knowing yourself. And like, this is something that I've been struggling with for years and basically couldn't identify it as a tick. Basically, I'll, I'll sometimes feel quite nauseous as a result of anxiety. So I'll sometimes feel feel a bit sick as a result of anxiety. And the tick's response, well, the, the tick is a response to that. So I'll sort of like blow air through my nose like quite quickly. And it sounds like quite weird. My family have picked up on it and like my girlfriend's picked up on it. But I think a lot of people might not have even noticed it. I think, oh God, everyone knows it. Everyone sees it. <laughs> what on earth do they think that is? That sounds awful. Like, like, oh gosh. You know, think all these ruminations and things. And basically, hardly anyone had noticed it. And it helped when I got more sleep. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> as simple. In my case, you know, and talking about it helped a lot. It's so strange to talk about because I kind of said, I think I might have a tick to my therapist. She said, all right, I don't think you do. You know, I don't see any reason why you would. And I said, I'm sure you've heard it, haven't you? She went, no, not at all. She obviously did identify it as a tick and and respond, you know, in terms of sleeping better, one of those things. And to be honest, stopping drinking coffee was one thing that helped a lot as well, to be honest with that. In general, that tends to induce anxiety in me. But yeah, so it's been amazing for that. I didn't really fully believe in the power of therapy in terms of things like that in terms of something so what seems to be so physical I always thought that it was more of like a physical thing that I had like a kind of thing something to do with my nose or or even like my stomach or I thought that it was something like that and it's so strange the way these things can be identified but once they are identified it's so much easier to manage and I guess it's just about realizing that hardly anyone notices it anyway and even if they do so what does it really matter <laughs> well you know however long we're here for is it the worst thing ever you know if you're a good person does it matter <laughs> does it really matter i want to reflect on your journey as a final question james so through this all these experiences that you've, that you've gone through what have they taught you about yourself and if you could go back to that 16 17 year old james who was worrying about his id and giving mates in between his dvd oh, do i have to go back to that <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe the 25 year old james right now who six months ago seven months ago was struggling with grief or maybe even the 21 year old james who was feeling isolated at university what would you say to him knowing what you do now i think i'd probably say 
go to therapy sooner, definitely. But I think I'd also say be kind to yourself. And I mean that not in a kind of cringy way of just like have a bath or something like that. I mean it more just have that level of like, as I've already said, have a generous interpretation of events in your life. Have a generous interpretation of your responses to it. Have the interpretation that you would have for others. If someone else came to you with the same problems that you have now, how would you respond? You know, would you be kind to them? Would you be a generous person to them? Would you see their life and their events? And would you, you know, have a generous interpretation of that? Or would you look to be endlessly critical? Would you look at loads of things and say, oh, well, what if this? What if that? What if you're ill with this? Nobody's like that. One of the great, uh, I think I've just embarrassed myself because I've forgotten, I was just about to recommend the book and I've just forgotten its name, but you might have already mentioned it before. I think it's like a proper therapist book, but it's by, oh, I can't remember it now. Oh, well, but there's a chapter in it called Your Inner Roommate. I don't know if Freddie might be able to help me, but there's a great bit. It's not coming to mind, but we'll t- we'll chat off air about it if you can find the book and I'll buy it. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. But yeah, I'll try and remember it and then I can put it on any tweets or anything. But that has just been absolutely great as well. You know, as an audio book, it, it was almost like having, well, similar to having therapy. I mean, there's, n- there's nothing really that you can actually replace it with and I wouldn't say that you should. Just having that self-awareness and being conscious of this inner roommate, these ruminations, they're not necessarily you. These are medical conditions, you know, and it's how you manage these things. And I think that I would just say to myself back then, yeah, be kind to yourself, have a generous interpretation of events. And otherwise, obviously, I don't think I'd say much more. I don't think there's a whole lot more I, I could say. I don't think that I was that far off the mark. I went to go and get that support back when I was 21. And to 17-year-old me, I, I'd just say it's all going to be all right. <laughs> you won't be FOMOing forever. One day you'll just wake up and realise it's all right to have a night in. Watching the Euros is fine. Don't worry. Your self-worth is not determined by how much you make people laugh on a night out or how much your social life. That's what I'd say. We've come to the final topic of conversation on our podcast, James. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So. First of all, how is your mental health at the moment, mate? Yeah, it's good, thank you. Yeah, I think having started my new job in Huddersfield, as I've mentioned, it's definitely given me a new sense of purpose and, yeah, definitely improved my mental health. And, yeah, it's not too bad at the moment. Excellent, mate. What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? In my experience, I'm always learning more. Well, I feel like I'm always learning more about it. I think that when I was 17, I didn't even know what name to put on the feelings that I was having at all. I would say that that came. But then having gone through the therapy, developing more of an emotional intelligence, I felt that I'm able to sort of, and and self-awareness, as I said, I'm able to, uh, to identify it much better. So I'd say that probably 25, probably 25, but I'd say that I'm looking... I'm also looking to improve all the time on my sort of awareness. And yeah, so I I think that's that's where I am. When you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, tell me a little bit about it. Who was it with? What impact did it have? And did you feel like a part of you had changed or you had entered a new chapter in your life or maybe a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it seem quite normal and insignificant? How do you look back on it? 
I remember telling my mum and dad that I was struggling with depression at that time. It was when I was at university and and I remember they were very gentle with me. But I feel like it was going on for so long and I just didn't know that when I had that conversation, it feels significant. It feels significant. It's hard to look back on in a way because we're on holiday at the time. On holiday at the time, it's not really what you want to hear on a family holiday. But you know, I'm very glad that I said it at that time and that I was able to share that with them. And there was a feeling that I had started to look at a new chapter from then. But at the same time, I don't necessarily see it as I feel like these things can sort of ebb and flow, really, and they can sort of peak and trough. So. You know, I've had periods of very good mental health since then and, you know, pretty bad as well. It's something that's not necessarily been a, you know, a sort of closed book from that point of view in terms of this is a new chapter. I'm going, I'm messing up my book and chapter analogies now, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's sort of never been a case of, oh, this was a complete turning point for me. It, it was something that I felt existed before, but I could now put a name on it. And then now I'm able to put more names on it and know more about it. And that's something that's, as I say, it's evolving with time. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health, James? So it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be when you see a particular location or an environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Well, anything like GP surgeries, hospitals are pretty bad in terms of like a trigger for sort of health anxiety. Things like that are quite bad, but then... I think I'm definitely getting better in terms of things like that. I have a lot of grief triggers and they're sometimes the sort of weirdest things that have such like a tenuous, so it's these tenuous associations sometimes that grief likes to sort of latch onto. So that's something that found that that is really strange. I think grief triggers will, will just continue. That's all right. You know, grief, sometimes it can feel like a, it's nice to feel to feel that Mm. you know in a strange Mm. way you feel the loss but it's like a sort of warm embrace as well but the anxiety is not like that at all (laughs) Mm. yeah I think I probably would say those things maybe I haven't figured them all out as I say I'm continually trying to learn more and evolve so I think that I don't think I have figured them all out that's okay what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health now or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked i get told to meditate a lot i can't really do it i don't know if it's just the way no, that i'm i'm wired or you know it's just my personality or maybe i've just been brought up in this world where we're just constantly wanting to be sort of stimulated by phones or telly or you know everything it's just hard to completely do that but i guess the closest that i would say that i get to that is with exercise would be something that's definitely improved my mental health during this time i think that talking about it in this way certainly helps i think that talking about it with friends and with my family and my girlfriend and her family i think that's improving mental health one of the things that i started to start to do a lot is i I went a bit like blender crazy so i just started (laughs) putting things like i started to do like pasta sauces in blenders and it's a bit of a strange thing. I did like hummus in like a food processor. And I started just getting into like making, I know a lot of people did in lockdown, but making a lot of things from scratch and just having that, like when I was off sick, it was really great to like just think about things, think about cooking really. It's just, it's, it is like one of my passions. I'm not like amazing at it, but it's something that does help my mental health mm. a lot to go into that, to have something to occupy my mind and podcasts as well, I would say as well. How do you support friends in your own network, given what you've been through, James, who might have mental health issues themselves or might be going through just a poor period of mental health? I'd always encourage people to talk to me about it and, you know, encourage them to go to therapy. You know, it's something that 
in terms of discussing things like the tick and the rumination, sometimes that can help to make people realize that it's not just you on your own, this sort of like ill person or something like that. It's just not like that at all. We all have our struggles and we all will go through things and, you know, things ebb and flow for different people. And I'd always want to support people. And if there's people that I know that are listening to this that are struggling, you know, just drop me a message or call me or anything really. And I can sort of advise based on my own situation. There's a lot of, through work, I've had to offer a lot of advice around sort of mental health and helping vulnerable people to access services as well. You know, and I would always say that, like, I know know it's sort of often mixed with success with things like medication, but I speak to some people and they say they're completely different. They say that it works wonders for them, you know, and I would say that the GP is the first port of call, get on any waiting list for CBT or therapy. And if you can access support through work, then do that as well. That's what I did. It was much quicker. So I would always want friends and family and to talk to me about it and, and to access the support. I would always say that. And as I say, at work, I have to deal with people struggling with the mental health, often quite high level, you know, and safeguarding issues as well. So it's something that is important to me that I want people, if they do know me, you know, in a work environment or in a personal environment, I hope they would feel like that they could talk to me about it if they mm-hmm. wanted to. I talk about two ideas on this podcast in this part of the topic, James, a lot. Toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now, there are no right or wrong answers to this question. So I try and break down toxic masculinity a lot, as you might be aware. And hopefully, maybe I'm naive or optimistic in a few more years, maybe a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority. Whereas on positive masculinity, I hopefully in a few more years, maybe a few more pods, masculinity will just be positive masculinity. What would you define as toxic masculinity? And what would you define as positive masculinity? So for example, some guests like Andy Kay and other people have talked about self-awareness or maybe self-confidence, empathy for other men, you know, not man shaming. What can you tell me here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, toxic masculinity, I think is something that I think probably say most people have experienced in their life, whether they were able to identify with that or not, really. I think that, as I was saying previously, when my dad was unwell, and obviously there were males who felt they were unable to cope with it. And if masculinity is about things like strength, I I don't understand how not being able to reach out to a friend or not being able to offer that support is strength, really, or expecting your friends to go alone without that support. That's not strength. That's not strength at all. You know, that's... That's weakness, really. And I think that positive masculinity, going back to really what I think it's it's something that I I always think of my dad. You know, he's someone who taught me how to be a man. I'd say that he taught me to be a positive male. And that's what I've I've always tried to be. I think that it is about strength. It it takes strength to say that you're struggling. It takes strength to support a friend who's in pain, a family member who's in pain, or even someone you don't know who's in pain. That that strength to me, not sort of pretending you don't see it or thinking, oh, and not having the bravery to say something in case you say the wrong thing. I think that you should have that bravery. You should look to develop emotional intelligence. If you don't feel that you are, you know, some people are naturally not amazing at talkers. They might be introverts. They might struggle with that kind of thing. And that's all right as well. You know, there's some people who've been very positive males from my family in this experience who are very introverted who don't say much it's not necessarily about that too I think that it's been as I say 
going back to how I described my dad, I think it's been a gentle person. It's been a strong person in the sense of you're able to talk about these things with people. You're able to sort of help people when they're struggling. That's how I see strength and not this, any ideas of, you know, step up a lip or staying strong and not being able to talk about these things point blank or not being able to cope or or what it comes down to, which is not offering support to people that you say that you love. I, I don't understand how that's strength. I don't understand how it's strength in any way. I don't understand how it's it's a good male characteristic in any way. So, yeah, definitely, I've, as I say, looking after other people would be a, a positive masculine trait. I think that gentleness is definitely a positive masculine trait. And as you say, it's being able to call these things out as well. I remember I listened to Andy Kay's about, you know, we've all been in, well, not everyone, but a lot of us have been in sort of, sport dressing your cricket dressing rooms or football dressing rooms and you look back now and it's a little bit cringy really and now these things are called out and I think that if I compare the response that my dad had with his illness to the response that my friends have given me I think there is a marked improvement there and as I say they know they are who've been very supportive to me but we're still a long way to go you know there's a lot of people who are still struggling to talk about these Mm. things who are still struggling to come to terms with it and as i say hopefully more and more people will be pushing a more positive form of masculinity so that we can break down these sort of to be honest quite racist and quite sexist ideas sometimes when it comes to mm. that sort of all bound up in this toxic masculinity and have a more sort of gentle and and as you say positive form of it i think it's a great term and a great idea <laughs> mm. thanks mate as a final question What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? There is still more to be done. I think that definitely, I think there's definitely more of an awareness of these things. And there is a strong message, I would say, that people do need to talk. But I would say that where perhaps we're falling down is accessing the right services uh, in my view personally because I got my therapy through work a lot of people don't have that privilege you know a lot of people don't have that opportunity to access therapy through work they go on waiting lists that are long as you mentioned before Freddie you know they go on people go and sit on long waiting lists waiting to access support and I think that's something that has to come from the government. It's something that will have to come through politics, really, that we do need more provision for these services, particularly during the pandemic and the effect that that's had on mental health and, you know, people losing income. It's all part of it. And the debt problem we've got in this country, I'm going to stop now before I get all political, but (laughs) yeah, it's something that definitely, I think that more and more there's the awareness, there's the PR campaigns are working in that respect that I think that men do know that they do need to talk and they do need to access services, but then it's, it's just getting those services readily available and getting them in a sort of fit and working condition and accessible for everyone who's struggling, really. That's where we're falling down at the moment. I think the government sort of talking a good game, but we need to see it backed up with action, really. That's what I think for what it's worth. James Whitaker, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Freddie. It's been a pleasure. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. 
Big thanks to James for being my special guest on this episode's pod and talking so openly and honestly about the grief of losing his dad publicly for the first time. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. I will sign us off by saying, Venters, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family, tell everyone you know and spread the good word about Vent. If you want to support us further, please give us a rating, five-star rating, I should say, and a review on Apple Podcasts that will really help us out with those precious, precious algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Venom and want to support us further, please visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash eventhelpuk or you can visit our GoFundMe. The GoFundMe link is in our link tree in all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.